this morning, we are going to be looking at the sword of the Spirit. We are going to be looking at the Word of God. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the sword of the Spirit uh, under two headings. We're going to look at the Word of God under two headings. We are going to ask and answer two questions concerning the Word of God. The first question that we are going to ask and answer is how do we use it? How do we use it? And then the second question that we are going to ask and answer is who does it point to? So how do we use it and who does it point to? So let's begin with the first question this morning, which is how do we use it? But here's the thing. I would argue that in order for us to truly understand how to use the word of God, uh, we must first figure out what the word of God actually is, right? I think it's important for us to have a biblical definition for what the word of God is, because if we don't know what it is, then we are less likely to wield it uh, in light of the way we're called to wield it in this passage. So to help explain for you and to you what the word of God is, let me break it down for you this way. In the Greek language, there are actually two Greek words for the word of God. And they are used interchangeably depending on the passage and depending on the context. So in the Greek language, when, so if you're reading in English and you see the phrase the word of God, it could be one of two Greek words that are being used there when the Bible talks to us about the word of God. The first word, the first Greek word that's used for the word of God in Greek is the word logos. And many of us have heard that. I'll explain what I mean by that in a second, right? But many of us have heard logos. But the second Greek word that's used for the word of God is the word rhema. Logos and rhema. And I would argue that in order for us to truly understand what the sword of the spirit actually is, we need to see that these two Greek words are very different. We need to understand the difference between the two. We need to understand the distinction between the two. And I would argue that the biggest uh, distinguishing difference between Logos and Rhema is that Logos is general and Rhema is specific. So so Logos refers to the general, the whole word of God. And then Rhema refers to a specific or particular word from God. Okay, so, so let, me, let me define it for you this way, because we really need to understand these two words if we're going to fully appreciate what Paul is calling us to do here in this passage. Let me, let me first take some time to define uh, logos and give you some examples from Scripture on how logos is used. The Greek word logos means a general or overall message, doctrine, or a systematic treatment of a subject. Say it again. In Scripture, the Greek word logos means a general, overall message, doctrine, or systematic treatment of a subject. That's one of the words that's used in Scripture for the Word of God. The general entirety of God's Word. Okay, it's referring to the whole book. Let me give you examples from Scripture that in English, you just see the word of God. But the word specifically used there is the word logos. The first example comes to us from Luke chapter 1, 1 and 2. Luke is a doctor. He is a follower of Jesus. He is writing this gospel uh, in order to give an account on the life of Jesus. And here's what he says in verse 1 and 2 of his 
gospel. He says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, then he says, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So, so he's telling them, I, I am going to give an account of what has happened in the life of Jesus. But then he talks about the people who came before him, the eyewitnesses and the ministers of the word. And the word there in Greek is the logos. So it's referring to the entirety of God's word, the whole Bible, right? Another place where that Greek word logos is used is in Mark 7, 11 through 13. And in Mark 7, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, and he talks to them about how they put their traditions over God's word. And he says in verse 11, but you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Verse 13, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. So Jesus here is referring to the logos, the entirety, the whole word of God. He says that these people with their religion, they put their religion, they put their religion over God's revelation. And in doing so, he says that they void the entire word of God, the logos. Another example of logos in the Bible is Acts 4, verse 31. It's speaking to us about the early disciples, and it says this in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. The phrase there, Word of God, is the word logos, the entirety of God's Word. They were preaching the entirety of God's Word with boldness, okay? So when the Bible uses the word logos, it is referring to the entirety of God's Word, the complete Bible, right? That's what it's referring to. But that's not the only Greek word that is used for the word of God in scripture. The, the other Greek word that's used way more than many people think is the Greek word rhema. Now rhema is different from logos, like I said, because if logos is the general word of God, right? Rhema is a specific or particular word for God, from God. Rhema is a specific, particular word, statement, declaration, or confession from God a specific word for a specific moment, okay? Now, let me give you examples in Scripture when the authors of the New Testament use the word rhema instead of the word logos. And when you see how they use it, you'll see the distinction between the two words. In Luke chapter 1, verse 38, the angel is speaking to Mary and informs Mary that she will be the mother of the Messiah. And here's what it says. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. See, but the Greek word there is not the word logos because Mary's not referring to the entirety of God's word. She is referring to a specific word that has been given specifically to her. See, the Greek word there is not logos, it's the word rhema. It is particular, it is specific. I mean, let's look at another example. Luke 3, verse 2. It says, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, this is John the Baptist, the son of Zechariah, 
in the wilderness. The Greek word there is not the word logos. It's the word rhema. God gave John a very specific word for a very specific calling. You start seeing the distinction? But if you're reading it in English, you just think it's the word of God. But in the Greek, there are two different words being used. Let me give you another example of rhema. In Luke 5, verse 5, it says, And Simon answered, he's talking to Jesus, And Simon, Peter, answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. The word there, again, is not logos, the general word of God. It is rhema, a specific word from God. And then the last example comes from Luke 24. This is the resurrection of Jesus. The women, they go to see uh, during Jesus' burial, right? They go see Jesus. They bring spices, and they find out when they get there that he's not in the tomb. And it says in verse 8 and 9 of Luke 24, and they, these women, they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Again, the Greek word there is not logos, the general word of God, the entirety of the Bible. It is rhema. Jesus had given those women a very specific and particular word about his resurrection. They remembered his rhema. Right? You see, you see the distinction? That is very important. So, so let me unpack it for you this way. For those of you who are more visual, let me unpack it for you this way. The logos is the general word of God. The rhema is a specific or particular word from God. So here is the way one author put it. If the logos is a well of water, then the rhema is a cup of water from that well. Right? It's the same water, but instead of the entire well, you are taking a cup from that water. Okay? Another way to describe it, to help you see the distinction between logos and rhema, is that the logos is all of the piano and its keys. The rhema is a particular key. You see the difference? So, so, so when, when we hear the logos, that refers to the entire Bible. When we hear rhema, it usually refers to one verse or one section of the Bible. That is the distinction between rhema and logos. Okay? Now here's something I need you to understand. The rhema will never contradict the logos. They always line up. Always. So, so, so if someone comes up to you and they tell you they have a rhema from God for you and it doesn't line up with the logos, it ain't from God. Because that's a really big thing in the church today. Oh, I, I was reading in my devotional time and or some people haven't read or prayed in forever, and God tells them things all the time. God told me to sleep with my girlfriend. Oh, man, what verse is that? Really? That's interesting. Right? When, when someone comes to you with a rhema, a particular or a specific word from God, and that rhema doesn't line up with the logos, the overall general word of God, then it isn't rhema. There's another word for that. It. It's called a lie. I had a guy once, this uh, older pastor, he's a pastor in Latin America, and he was in from out of town, and him and I uh, met, and he saw me, I don't know what I was doing, but apparently he saw me using my left hand, 
And he comes up to me. He's like, I see that you're using your left hand. And I'm like, yeah, I use it often. You know, I, and he's like, you're probably left-handed. Let, let, me, let, me, let me share with you what the Lord just gave me. In the Old Testament, I don't even know what character he was talking about. There, there's a man that says that he was left-handed and he had really good aim. You know, I, I want you to know that whatever God's calling you to do, uh, you're, you're going to hit the mark. And I'm like, brother, listen, man, uh, I don't know who that, 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 that prophecy is for, but it ain't for me, brother, because I am not left-handed. You either got the wrong verse or the wrong guy, but I am not, that is not for me, okay? But, but he, he, he was part of a tradition that was just so big to kind of just say whatever they felt in the moment, and in his mind, I was left-handed and had good aim, Right? The problem is that it had nothing to do with me because I wasn't left-handed and he was butchering whatever passage he was looking at. And then I met, I, I was talking to his son about it earlier, later on, his son, uh, who's one of the pastors on the staff. And he was like, oh yeah, my dad quotes that verse to everybody. Like, like anyone who he sees use their left hand. He's like, hey, uh, the Lord gave me a word for you. <laughs> right? So, so, so what, what we see is that if someone, whether it's you that hears something from God, it's a rhema that God has given you and it doesn't line up with the Logos, or if a friend of yours or someone comes up to you and gives you a rhema that doesn't line up with the Logos, then it isn't rhema. It isn't. And that's why I I think it's so important for us to be in community. Because if, if we were just alone and we only did Christianity alone, there's a lot of nonsense that we would believe. There's a lot of things that we can convince ourselves of. There's a lot of sin that we can justify. You can take verses out of context all day. But we need to be in community because it's not just the Holy, the, the Spirit of God that helps us. It's the, the body of Christ that helps us. Amen. That's why, he, here's what it says in 2 Corinthians 13.1. Paul is talking to uh, the, 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 the Corinthians who were doubting his ministry. They were doubting his authority. And they were doubting that the revelation he was getting was from God. And so he kind of flips the tables on him and says this. This is the third time I am coming to you. Then he says, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. The Greek word there, charged, is the Greek word rhema. So, so, so Paul says, every time there's a rhema, you better have two or three witnesses that establish it and confirm it. So don't just be saying, oh, God told me, and no one else sees what God tells you, or no one else agrees on a lot of Scripture. Because if that's the case, then God probably didn't tell you. Satan might have told you. Your flesh might have told you. The world might have told you. But he says, every rhema must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Because if the rhema doesn't line up with the logos, it isn't rhema. So, Why have I taken so much time to explain to you the difference between Logos and Rhema? Well, the reason why is because to understand that difference helps us to understand this passage. Because when Paul says that the word of God is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, you would think that the Greek word that Paul uses there is the word Logos. He's talking about the word of God in general. But actually in Greek, the word of God, the the, the Greek word that Paul uses there is not uh, uh, Logos. It's rhema. So he says it's the sword of the spirit, which is the rhema of God. A specific and particular 
word for, from God for a particular and specific season. That's the Greek word that Paul is using here in this passage. But once you understand the Greek, it just changes the whole meaning of the text. You're looking at it different now if you understand that what he's referring to here is not the overall logos, but the specific rhema. Then in the passage, he refers to it as the sword of the spirit. The sword of the spirit. Why does Paul refer to the word of God as the sword of the spirit? Well, the reason why Paul does that is because that phrase of the spirit means that the word is from the spirit of God. The word of God is from the spirit of God. That's what the phrase there of the spirit means. It belongs to him. He is the source. He is the origin. And when we look at scripture, what we are taught is that it's the Holy Spirit that inspired the word of God. There were human authors, but it was really one author because the Holy Spirit inspired people to write what they wrote. That's just not my opinion. Look what scripture says. In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul writes to Timothy, he says this, all scripture is breathed out. By God. That's the inspiration. The, the, the word of God is inspired by God. God is the author. There are many authors, but really there's only one author because it's the Holy Spirit that inspired the authors to write what they wrote. And he says, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And then Peter talks about this same concept in Second Peter one twenty one. he's even more specific than Paul is. He says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but listen to this, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the what? The Holy Spirit. And so the reason why it's referred to as the sword of the Spirit is because the Spirit is the one who inspired it. He is the source. He is the origin of the Word of God. In other words, the Word of God is a spiritual weapon that is given to us and wielded for us by the Spirit of God. That's what Scripture teaches. The Word of God is given and wielded by the Spirit of God. Now, the question is this. Why does Paul compare the Word of God to a sword? And that's kind of the question we've asked with every single one of these uh, pieces of equipment, right? We, why does he decide to compare uh, faith with the shield or salvation with the helmet? Like, like, why does Paul, out of all the weapons or equipment he could have picked, why does he compare the word of God to a sword? Well, in order to answer that question, I, I'm going to give you some background on what the sword actually was. Now, a Roman soldier had two swords to pick from. There was a larger sword, that was referred to as the broadsword. It was a big, heavy sword, which wasn't used as often because of how big and heavy it was. But the second sword, which was the smaller one, which was the much more common sword that was used by a Roman soldier, was a, soldier, was a, a sword that was anywhere between 6 to 18 inches, and it was a double-edged sword. And it was a sword that was used specifically for hand-to-hand combat. It was used for, earlier, uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about that word wrestle, that the, 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 the word wrestling means face-to-face, very intimate, right, hand-to-hand combat. This sword, the smaller sword, was the one that most Roman soldiers used because they were used when there was hand-to-hand, intense, face-to-face combat. 
As a matter of fact, when you look at Scripture, we see this sword referred to often. Because even in the Garden of Gethsemane, we are told that the soldiers who come to arrest Jesus have these swords in their possession. And then we are also told that the sword that, that Peter takes out and cuts off the ears of Malchus, the ear of Malchus, this is the sword that Peter is using when he cuts off the ear of Malchus. Now, why is that important? Because Jesus is referring, I'm sorry, Paul here is not referring to the bigger sword, the broad sword. He's referring to the smaller sword. And this smaller sword, ironically, would actually hang from the belt of truth. The belt. You would have the sword in the belt. So if you didn't have God's general truth, which in some ways is the logos, you have nowhere to put the rhema. You see what I'm saying? That, that's, that's what it is. There's, he starts with the word of God, the belt of truth, and he ends with the word of God, the sword of the spirit. But if you don't have the belt on, there's nowhere to put the sword. If you don't have a foundational logos, then you're not going to have specific rhema. Your sword hangs from your belt. Now, here's what's interesting. This, the sword was used both for offense and for defense. Obviously, it was used for offense because you would use it to, to try to attack and stab or whatever you got to do with, you know, the person you were fighting. But what was interesting is that it was also used for defense. But it wasn't used for defense in general like the shield of faith. Like the shield of faith, you just, the shield, you just hide behind, you know, you hid behind it and it would protect you from, from all of it. But this, this sword, the type of defense that it provided is it would provide very specific defense from very specific attacks. When your enemy would attack you with his sword, you would parry and you would deflect. Right? But it wasn't just, it wasn't just defense in general. It was very specific defense. You would parry and you would deflect the specific attacks from your enemy. And when you have that background in mind, uh, it helps us to understand this passage then. Let me, let me tie it all up for you. The reason why the word of God is referred to as the sword of the spirit is because in order to truly get the most out of the word of God, you need the spirit of God. And let me show you the three ways in which you need the spirit if you are going to get the most out of the word of God. The, the first way is that we already learned that the word of God is inspired by the spirit, right? So the Holy Spirit inspired the word of God initially. But what we also learn, and this is actually in John 14, Jesus refers to the Spirit as a teacher, as our instructor. The Holy Spirit doesn't just inspire the Word of God initially, past tense, but then He instructs us continually. When, when I go to the Word of God, my teacher is the Spirit of God. He instructs me. He, he teaches me. So He inspired the Word of God initially. He instructs me continually. And according to Paul, he also imparts to us specifically. He imparts to us specifically. Now, now what do I mean by that? Well, if the, if the Spirit inspired the Word of God initially, okay, and he instructs the Word of God continually, that's logos, the first two, then what this passage teaches us is that that same Spirit imparts the Word of God to us Specifically, In other words, the more we read and study the Logos, the more the Holy Spirit will be able to impart 
to us the rhema when we need it in those moments. He, he imparts the word of God to us specifically. He brings those passages to memory when we need them, when we are evangelizing, when we are suffering, when we are in spiritual warfare. As a matter of fact, Jesus talks about this. He talks about how he will give them the Holy Spirit, and when they stand before courts, the Holy Spirit, like, do not worry about what you will say because the Holy Spirit will give you the words in that moment. The Holy Spirit will take the logos and give you rhema. He will take the general word of God and then give you specific words from God. But remember what we said, the rhema and the logos always line up. They never contradict. That is the role the Holy Spirit plays. So let me use one more illustration to help illustrate this. And this is kind of a violent illustration, but we're talking about warfare, so, so work with me, okay? If your mind is a gun, if your heart is a gun, the logos is the cartridge, the rhema is the bullet. So if I'm not in God's word daily, putting bullets into the cartridge, then I can't be surprised when Satan shows up and I have no bullets to fire. You get what I'm saying? So the reason why it's so important for us to be under the preaching of God's word, the reason why it's so important for us to read and study the word of God individually or in Bible study or in small group is because the more we get the word of God in us, the more bullets we are putting in the cartridge. But if the cartridge is empty, don't be surprised where there's no bullet to shoot because the Holy Spirit can't remind you a verse you never learned. And that's why the word here is rhema, because the Holy Spirit takes the general word of God, and when Satan attacks you with whatever attack he's attacking you, the Holy Spirit gives you the verse that deflects that particular attack. And that's why it's the sword of the Spirit. So in light of that, since the question that we are trying to answer here is how do we use it, the word of God, I want to give you five ways Five ways that we as believers should be interacting with the Word of God pretty much daily, okay? So if you're taking notes, I don't have these verses up here as far as like I'm reading. I'm going to read them for you, but I only have the references up here. But there are five ways in light of Scripture that we use the Word of God on a daily basis. The, the first way that we use the Word of God is through preparation, through preparation. What, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is, if you're sitting here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit resides in you. One of the things that we have to do when we are preparing ourselves to read the Word of God personally or receive the Word of God publicly in a Sunday, in a Sunday morning, we have to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to prepare us for what we are about to receive. Like, I'm guilty of this all the time. I can't tell you how many times I will sit down to do my devotional and I won't pray and ask the Holy Spirit to prepare my heart. I, I will just assume that my heart is ready to receive God's word. I, I, I completely overlook the fact that I am a sinner, that my heart gets hard, right? And so I come to the word of God assuming that I'm a neutral person when really there's nothing neutral about me. And so one of the things we have to do as we interact with the word of God is we have to prepare ourselves for the word of God. We have to pray for the Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what God wants for us in that moment. Look what it says in Scripture. Psalm 119. Oh, I'll read it for you. I don't have it up there. But Psalm 119 verse 18 says this. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things 
out of your law. Or maybe, no, I don't. So, um, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. The psalmist there is actually praying, God, as I come to your law, open my eyes. That I may see, that I may hear what you want me to see and hear. Another passage that supports this is Mark 13. In Mark 13, 1 through 7, Jesus is talking about the, the, he tells the parable of the four soils. And how different soils, different hearts receive the word of God differently, right? But what's interesting about that passage is so often we only think of non-Christians when we think of that. Oh, that's for non-Christians. But I would argue that our hearts, because we are sinners, can drift back to the soil isn't tilled. And the soil isn't ready to receive the word of God. Not that we lose our salvation, but that we forget our salvation. And we are not in the place to receive the seed of God's word. So our prayer should be, when we go to the word of God, is, Holy Spirit, whatever the soil of my heart is right now, I pray that you would move me towards that fourth soil that receives the word of God and then produces tenfold and fiftyfold and a hundredfold. Prepare my heart for your word. You know, I have, uh, what I have, I have a, a little prop here. I'm not usually a prop guy. But uh, earlier this week, um, I had a meeting I had to go to. I was actually meeting with Pastor Drew. He's our family pastor. He's, the, he's preaching over at Carville uh, this morning. And him and I were going to get together to work on our sermons together. And I was trying to leave my house, and I get to my car, and usually I leave my, I have a keyless uh, Nissan Altima, right? So you need a key fob in order for that car to turn on. So I get to my car, and usually I just hit the brake and press the button, it turns on, and I'm on my way. But for some reason... On this day, I was already running late. I sit in my car. I hit the brake, turn the button, click the button, nothing happens. And I keep hitting the button. I'm like, okay, something's wrong. Either the battery on the 5 is dead or the 5 isn't here. So I look all over the car. can't find the 5 anywhere. I look all over the house. I'm starting to get more and more frustrated because I can't find the 5. I finally find it in a, a pair of jeans I had worn the day before, and it had never taken it out of my pocket. So I finally found it like 15 minutes later. Your pastor was not in a good mood by the time I found it. But here's the thing. I took that same fob, brought it to my car, hit the button, and the car turned on. Why? Because the only thing that could turn that car on is this fob. That's just how it works. So I have a car in my garage. It's got gas in it. It's not an old car. Works fine. Great car. I can sit in it. I can play in it. I can do the vroom noises, you know what I mean, in my garage. But if I want to drive the car, if I want the car to turn on, I need the fob. That's just how it works. See, a lot of people, we go to the Word of God, and we treat it like a car with no fob in it. And we go to the Word of God, and, and, and we just try to hit the button in our flesh. Hit the button. Hit the, why isn't the engine turning on? Why, why am I not getting anything from this? Well, it's because the Holy Spirit is the fob. And if you don't acknowledge that you need the fob in order to turn the car on, don't be surprised when the car doesn't get you anywhere. That's how the Holy Spirit works. And that's why we have to pray for God to prepare our hearts. Holy Spirit, prepare me to receive your word. Prepare me because if not, I just have a nice car that doesn't go anywhere. So, the first thing we see is 
the first relationship we have with the Word of God is preparation. The, the second relationship, the second way that we should be using the Word of God is examination. Examination. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what we discover when we look at Scripture is that in order for us to truly steward the Word of God in our lives, we must, allow, we must not just study the Word of God. We must allow the Word of God to study us. Look what it says in Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. Well, again, I keep forgetting I don't have it up there. Sorry. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, and all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. See, when we read the word of God, the word of God examines us. When we read it, it reads us. When we study it, it it studies us. It exposes us. It it literally, it it punctures us and opens us up. And we see things that we never thought were there. You see, because here's the thing. A lot of times when we think of the word of God, we think of it as a warrior's sword. But in light of this passage, not only is the word of God a warrior's sword, but it's also a surgeon's scalpel. That the same sword that defeats the enemy is the same sword that sanctifies the children. It's not just a warrior's sword, it's a surgeon's scalpel. And God goes in and starts doing work on your heart and exposing things that you had no idea were there. That's what this passage teaches. But as we talk about examination, I I think that we would be remiss if we don't go to James 1. 22 through 25, because in there, James says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. Verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James says that the word of God is like a mirror. And regardless of what you think you look like, the word of God will tell you what you actually look like. Right? Have you ever had that where you think you look a certain way in the morning and then you look in, you know, in, in the mirror, you're like, oh, that's not what I expected to find. Like, <laughs> last night was rougher than I thought. So, so this week, uh, actually last week, uh, my youngest, Alicia, who's five, um, she, for, for Mother's Day, uh, she uh, made a, a, a picture for my wife. And she drew a picture, and it was a gift. And, and at the bottom of the picture, there's a, like these fill-in-the-blanks, and what do you love about your mom, and what do you do with your mom, whatever. But, but the goal was for her to draw, to draw a picture. Now, I may be biased, but, but I feel that my wife is the most beautiful woman of all time. The problem is, is that that's not the picture that came home. <laughs> it was so bad, in fact, that I walked into the house, and it was Lily and Alicia, and she's like, Will, uh, Alicia made a picture for me. And you could tell she was trying to, like, smile, so, like, I don't freak out. And I'm like, oh, really? Can I see it? She turned that thing around, and this is what I saw. Look at those lips. Are you kidding me right now? I would be swallowed up by those lips. And I'm pretty sure they're chapped too. I'm pretty sure those are chapped lips because they're cracking. And then the no- her nose looks like she's one of the Jacksons, like one of the Jackson 5. Like she's Jackson 6. Like she's the, she's the mixing, missing Jackson. So my mom's eyes are brown. Her hair is brown. Uh, she's 13, 31. I don't know what that is. That's a, some number. You know, she likes 
salad. She likes to cook, you know. So, but this, this, this was just a very frightening thing. And so I had to like hide my, my reaction because I wanted her to not feel judged by me, right? But I think this is what the word of God is like though. Like I think we look a certain, we feel like we look a certain way. We're like, oh man, I'm killing it. I'm killing it. I look good. And then we open up the word of God and that's what we see. We don't look as good as we think. But if we're not in the Word of God, then we don't ever get an actual reflection of who we actually are, and then there's no spiritual growth. We never actually change. Okay? So the Word of God is used. We should, there's preparation. There is examination. Uh, the other use for the Word of God is sanctification. The Word of God plays a big role in our sanctification. What does that mean? Sanctification uh, refers to spiritual growth, the process of becoming more like Jesus, right? Let me reread uh, 2 Timothy. We, we, we read the first part that all Scripture is God-breathed, right? But then he says, but it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. In other words, the Word of God is sufficient for our sanctification. Jesus says something similar, but in a shorter way. He says in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Then he says, your word is truth. So according to Jesus, what sanctifies us is the word of God. And the more we are exposed to the word of God, the more we will become like God. And then first, in 1 Peter, Peter writes in chapter 2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow into salvation. And so what we see is that the word of God is pivotal for us when it comes to sanctification. Two more. We also use the word of God when it comes to memorization or meditation. That we aren't just to have the word of God and read it flippantly, but we are to meditate on it. We are to memorize it. Look what it says in Psalm 1 and 2, it says, Psalm 1, verse 2, it says, But his delight is the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And then Psalm 119, 11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And then Colossians 3, 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. So we are called to meditate on scripture we are called to memorize scripture as a matter of fact with the guys that i'm discipling um we've been meeting for uh several several months now i got six guys that i'm discipling and one of the things that i'm trying to figure out i haven't done this yet is as they share their struggles and what they're navigating in my head i'm formulating okay which verses am i going to give each one of these guys for them to memorize so that when that thing comes up they can take right the 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 rhema off the logos and fight against the enemy, and defend against his, his attacks. There's not just memorizing Scripture in, in general, but memorize the Scriptures that have to do with your struggles so that when those temptations come, you are ready to fight. And the last way that we interact with the Word of God, that we need the Word of God, is when it comes to temptation. Why? Because in Matthew chapter 4, we see Jesus, the Son of God, who could have easily just told Satan to go away, we see Jesus, the Son of God, being tempted by Satan, and we see the Son of God using the Word of God. He models for us how to use the Word of God when we are being tempted. He's modeling it for us. And Satan shows up, and he tries to tempt the last Adam the same way he tempted the first Adam. He, he takes the Word of God, and he 
butchers it. He manipulates it. He, te- he keeps parts off, right? He gives them certain verses that are out of context. And what the last Adam does, which the first Adam didn't do, is he gives them the word of God back. He says, it is written, it is written, it is written. You know, I don't know how many football fans uh, we have here, but here's the thing about football. I, I heard this the other day in one of the sports sh- uh, shows I was watching. The, the guy was a former football player, and he said this. He said, there's a difference in football between a turnover and a takeaway. He said, they both end up in the same place. Like, you both, both end up with you giving the ball to the t- other team, right? But there's a difference, he said, between a turnover and a takeaway. A takeaway is when the quarterback says hike, drops back perfectly, the receiver runs the perfect route, everything's perfect. He throws the perfect pass to the perfect receiver at the perfect route, but the defender is just better and takes it away. He jumps in the way and he takes it, right? That's a takeaway. He says that a takeaway is different from a turnover. A turnover is not when the defender did anything, but when you made a mistake and turned the ball over. Your count wasn't right, your, your, your drop wasn't right, your, the route wasn't right, but it's a mistake that you've made that has allowed an open door for the opposition. Church, here's the thing. No one here is perfect. We are going to have takeaways in our life. Like, there's going to be times where Satan's going to show up and, and get you, right? Our flesh is going to come out of left field. But we should do everything in our power by memorizing the Word of God, by getting the Word of God in us, to not have turnovers. We're going to have takeaways. But how many of us are like, oh, the enemy got me again? Haven't read my Bible in three months. Don't really go to church ever, but he got me again. No, he didn't get you. You got yourself. That wasn't a takeaway. That was a turnover. You gave him the ball. That's what we see. If we don't ever download the Logos, we shouldn't be surprised when we can't upload the Rhema. So, that first question is how do we use it? And the last question that I want to conclude with this morning is who does it point to? Who does the word of God point to? Now, the reason why I want to end with this last question is because I would argue that the answer to this question is absolutely essential. As a matter of fact, I would argue that you can answer the first question correctly and get the second question wrong. But if you get the second question wrong, then you really never got the first question right. That's how essential this question is. Because I would argue that the thing that most plagues the American church today is that we answer this question wrongly. We get this question wrong. Because most American Christians, I can't speak of global Christianity, most American Christians assume that the Bible is ultimately not about God, but about them. And one of the things that plagues American Christianity is not gospel-centered exegesis, it is man-centered narcissism. And every passage you hear is magically about you. You're David, and that problem is your Goliath. You got to take it out with your five stones, whatever stones they are. And every passage is magically about you. 
I would say, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this because I have a quote to, to back it up. The majority of preaching in the American church today is not gospel-centered exegesis, but man-centered narcissism. I came across a quote. This is from Preaching and Pulpit Digest. And they did a national study, and here's what they discovered. 85% of sermons today are anthropocentric. What that means is most sermons are not grounded. This is a direct quote. Most sermons are not grounded in the character, nature, and will of God. 85%, the study says, are about you, your potential, your application. It's about you. And so then we shouldn't be surprised when music is about us and the service is about us because we're catering the whole thing, even the Word of God, around the person or people. Not the person, Jesus, but people, us. That's what that study shows. And so what you do is you get sermons that you get law-based sermons. Here's, here's, we talked about this a long time ago when we were in the prodigal series. But there's two types of law-based sermons. The first type of law-based sermon is the don't do this and don't do that and don't do that sermon. Right? Those, that's the sermon. That's maybe the church you grew up in. Hey, don't, don't drink, don't chew, and don't hang with girls that do. Right? <laughs> don't do this and don't do that and don't do this and make sure you don't do that. But then the new churches came out, the, the mega churches of the 80s and the 90s came. They're like, we're not going to be about what you don't do. Instead, we're going to be about what you do. Instead of don't do this, it's do this. See, those churches are like, we're, we're not your grandmother's church. See, they, they, they look different, those churches on the surface. The don't church and the do church. But really, they're the same church because it's just two sides of the same coin. Me telling you not to do something... Right? And me telling you to do something. This is a different way of saying the same thing. And so it's still the law. It's still up to you. Gospel-centered preaching doesn't say don't or do. Gospel-centered preaching says done. If a sermon ends and you don't hear done, you didn't hear the gospel. It's still up to you. And so we have these people who will literally take one Bible character and in one sermon say, we have to be just like that person. And then a few chapters later, be like, you should never be like this person under any circumstances. So you look at Noah. Oh, we got to be faithful like Noah because Noah was better than everybody else, which he wasn't because it says that the fa- God had favor on him. The, the Hebrew word there has grace. He wasn't special. There was nothing special about him. But, but we, we got to have faith like Noah. And then a few chapters later, Noah gets drunk and, and commits sexual morality. We should never be like Noah. Under any circumstances. He's the worst. Right? Genesis 12. We should be like Abraham. Look at the faith of Abraham. Oh, my gosh. Abraham is the man. We love Abraham. Have faith like Abraham. A few chapters later, he's giving up his wife every time he goes into a new city. You should never be like Abraham. He's the worst. King David. Oh, we got, we got to be like King David. He, he was a man after God's own heart. And you get to the Bathsheba passage. Don't ever be like King David. He's the worst. So he's either the best or he's the worst. Even Peter. Oh, we got to be like Peter. He, he was the first one that declared Jesus the Messiah. Then a few chapters later, he denies Jesus. We, sh- we should never, ever be like Peter. He is the worst. And that's what man-centered preaching is. You tell people to be like Abraham, to be like David, 
to be like Noah. See, but the problem is, and this will be the last thing I say about this. If I got up here today and was preaching from the story of Noah and told you to be like Noah and never pointed to Jesus, I can preach that same sermon in a synagogue and a mosque and nobody would be offended. Same thing Jews are preaching. Same thing Muslims are preaching. It's not do, it's not don't, it's done. That's the gospel. But what happens is a lot of us, we try to use uh, physical swords to try to win a spiritual battle. You know, one of the things I learned this week, which I knew, but I had never looked at it through this context. A commentator made this observation. He said that in both the, New Test- in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have two individuals who you try to use a physical sword to try to carry out God's spiritual victory. He says the example in the Old Testament is of Moses. Moses, he sees one of the Israelites being attacked, and he gets angry and tries to take God's salvation into his own hands, and he kills an Egyptian. He takes a sword and kills an Egyptian. He tries to bring a spiritual victory using a physical sword. Then in the New Testament, we see Peter. The soldiers show up in the garden to arrest Jesus, Peter's not having it, and so he takes the sword and cuts off the ears, uh, the ear of Malchus, but he's using a physical sword to try to bring spiritual victory. They are trying to do in their own strength what God is going to do in his strength. But, but, but the problem with both of them is that their faith was not in God, their faith was in themselves. We said a few weeks ago when we were looking at the shield of faith that Satan is not scared of faith. If you have faith in general or faith in faith or faith in yourself, Satan is fine with that faith. As long as it's not faith in God. Because what makes your faith strong is the object of your faith. But if we are going out trying to use, phys- trying to use physical swords in order to win a spiritual battle, we are going to lose every time. If the Bible is about you, then it is all on you. So the question we have to ask is this. If it's not about us, then who is the Bible about? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because what we see is that the Word of God points us to the Son of God. The Word of God points us to the Son of God. And again, I'm not just going to give you my opinion. I'm going to give you the Word of God that tells us. In John 5, 39 through 40, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders, and he says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about who? About me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus says, You are looking to Scripture, but instead of finding me, you're finding yourself. And yet the scriptures testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me because you don't see me. Then in Luke 24, 27, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, and it says, And beginning with, the, the, with Moses and all the prophets, this is Jesus, he interpreted to them, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning who? Himself. The Bible is not about you. The Bible is not about me. The Bible is about Jesus, church. And if you hear a sermon that points you to anyone other than him, you didn't hear a sermon. You heard a TED Talk. And then in John 14, 
Here we see the, 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 the Holy Spirit taking the Logos and making it rhema. In John 14, verse 26, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit is a floodlight. The Holy Spirit is a spotlight who points to Jesus. Like right now, there's a spotlight on me. But how many people build their whole theology around the spotlight instead of the thing that the spotlight is pointing at? It would be like you come into a house and there's a floodlight that's trying to focus on something on the house. And instead of looking at whatever it's focusing on, you're like, that's an amazing floodlight. Wow. What an incredible floodlight. But what we see is that the Word of God doesn't just point to Jesus. The Word of God is embodied and personified by Jesus. Because in John 1 verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, the Word of God doesn't just point to Jesus. The Word of God is personified by Jesus. It is embodied by Jesus. Praise be to God that God didn't just give us some principles or some precepts. God sent us a person, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So what we discover is that the word of God points us to the work of God. Jesus is the ultimate logos, and the gospel is the ultimate rhema. That's what we see when we look at Scripture. But what I love about the temptation story that we were looking at earlier is that in that passage, in that story, Satan is tempting Jesus. But, but, but that temporary battle points us to a permanent and eternal victory. And what we see is that Jesus is being tempted, but the Logos, the Word of God, is using the rhema to defeat the enemy, to combat the enemy. And one of the things that Satan says to him is Satan says, if you jump off this temple... He quotes Psalm 90, uh, 11 through 12. He says that God will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And he says he will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. He, he, Satan knows scripture better than many of us do. He quotes it, verse 11 and 12, but there's one verse that he doesn't quote. He intentionally cuts out verse 13. He reads 11 and 12, but he doesn't read verse 13. Why? Because what we discover in verse 13 is that the same foot that will not be struck against a stone is the same foot that will one day trample the, the serpent underfoot. Amen. He doesn't read that part of the verse. He's not done. He doesn't read that part of the verse because he understands. He knows that he will be done. He knows that the last Adam came to finish what the first Adam started. Satan likes to remind us of God's first word, which is the law, but not of God's last word, which is the gospel. He doesn't want us to know. He wants us to remind us, he wants to remind us, he reminds us of the law of God, but not the love of God. He calls us by our sin, but not by our salvation. He calls us by our iniquity, but not by our identity. See, Satan knows that if the Bible is about us, then we are fully enslaved. But if the Bible is about Jesus, then we are fully freed. We need the daily reminder of the word of God to remind us of the work of God so that Satan cannot get a foothold. Because what the Bible teaches, I'm not sure what your Bible teaches, but what my Bible teaches is that in the gospel, the prostitute is made a bride. In the gospel, the unrighteous are made righteous. In the gospel, the broken are restored. In the gospel, the dead are made alive. 
In the gospel, the slaves are made sons. In the gospel, sinners are made saved. In the gospel, the blind are healed. And in the gospel, the lost are found. Praise be to God, church, that the Bible is not a recipe book of good works, but the Bible is a revelation book of good news. The Bible is not about the work of the redeemed. The Bible is about the work of the redeemer. The Bible is not about what I've sacrificed for Jesus. The Bible is about what Jesus has sacrificed for me. The Bible is ultimately about God meeting my badness with his goodness, my rebellion with his rescue, and my sin with his salvation. That's the word of God. Why? Because God knew that what we desperately needed was not more steps, but a savior. Was not more models, but mercy. And not more application, but atonement. When you go to the word of God, there is nothing that's more honest about the problem, which is your sin. And yet at the same time, There is nothing that's more hopeful about the solution, which is your salvation. Jesus met the standard of God's word so that we might receive the salvation of God's work. And the same word of God that sanctifies our soul for spiritual growth is now the same word of God that slays Satan in spiritual warfare. Amen? Amen.